right, good morning. It's good to see you. For those of you who are in town, I'm honored to be here with you this morning. I'm excited to spend this time with you. And uh, we're going to be working out of Isaiah this morning. We're not working out of the book of John as we have been. We are going to detour for the next four weeks. So if you have a Bible or a device, go to Isaiah 9, the book of Isaiah. It's a fantastic book, Isaiah 9. While you're turning there, I don't know if any of you had bullies in school, but I remember my very first bully, my very first real bully in school. It was in middle school. I went to Watauga Middle School in the Metroplex of Texas and uh, played football with this guy. I'm not going to give you his name. He's probably still living and breathing, but he was three years older than the rest of us in the same grade level. (laughs) He was so old. It sounds like I'm about to tell a, a Paul Bunyan story, you know, but I'm not. He was so old that he actually had a driver's license, drove his own car to school in middle school and parked where all the teachers parked, the only person in that middle school to have his own driver's license. Um, he poured concrete and did construction work with his dad in the summers. So not only was he older and had a lot of facial hair and had a really deep voice, he was really muscular, big, thick neck, big arms. He was huge, and he knew it. He terrorized everybody. I mean, he wasn't just like my personal bully. He was like Biff in Back to the Future. He was everybody's bully, you know? And so I would see him coming down the hall, and I would get tense inside, just, ugh. Just that feeling, that unnerved feeling. And it wasn't just me. Nobody wanted to come against that guy as he's walking down the hall. You would look for new ways to, even if you were 10 minutes late to your next class, to avoid Biff because you didn't know if he was going to slap the books out of your hand or he, he had this thing where he'd come up behind you and pull your pants down or shame you or wedgies or, or punch you. I saw him punch a couple guys just because. Just freaked us out just terrorized us. Whenever I would see Biff coming down the hall, I would always think in that moment, I wish I was an adult right now. Not so that I could just pound this guy, even though that probably, as a young dude, that's probably what I would have wanted to do. But I wanted to be an adult because in my mind, adults didn't have bullies. But we do, don't we? It just look a little different. Our bullies, they don't give us wedgies anymore, right? And they don't shame or embarrass us. They don't, they don't really hurt us. But It is very common that as adults, we look down our own hallways of life. We just look in the future and we see something coming towards us that terrorizes us. Something that makes us feel unnerved, nervous, sick to our stomach a little bit. And so before we read this passage, I want you to consider what the greatest bully in your life is. Not a person, a thing, something that could happen a fear that you have. I want you to consider that as we read this because something most likely is threatening to destroy or ruin you, and that has more to do with Christmas than you may think, okay? So let's look at Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 2, okay? Verse 2, and I'm going to read it to you. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt In a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle 
and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. And here's the key verse that you've heard many times, no doubt. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. We are officially in Advent season. That might be a new word for some of you if you're not familiar with what the word Advent is. It's a form of the Latin word um, that tells us, or it's where we get the word coming, right? Coming. In fact, last year, whenever we did Advent, we just named this series Coming. Um, and not just celebrating the coming of God the Son to us through a virgin in a manger, but also the second coming of Christ as well. The coming of God to us as victorious king in the end of all ends to tie everything all up and to break us free from the walk that we have today and our mortality to carry us off to be with him, to worship and to be glory or to glorify him for the rest of our time. So it's not just a first coming, it's a second coming and they cooperate with each other. And they show us what grace looks like. God's coming to us is a grace to us that we don't deserve. It's something that we couldn't earn. It's something we can't lose. We see God's grace to us as he comes to us as God the Son as a child. And then we will see God's grace to us as he comes as God the Son, the King. Both of them cooperate. So we get to celebrate that at Christmas time. But if you go through a Christmas Advent season and don't understand grace, it's not happening correctly. You should see and feel God's grace as we go through these four sermons, because this Advent season, we're going to get to go through it for four Sundays. I think last year we only got to do three, right? And so what we're going to do a little bit different this year, we're going to look at the four names given to Jesus right here in Isaiah's passage in verse six, for to us a child is born and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, that's one name, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, right? These names aren't really names that Jesus went by. They weren't like nicknames. No one called him Prince of Peace while he was walking the earth. This isn't, these aren't terms that he would go by, but they are very much true and truths describing who God the Son is for all of us. And these names appear in what's mostly widely considered the greatest messianic anticipation in the entire Bible. Right? I mean, this is a very, very epic passage. That's why you've heard it. You see it on uh, ornaments. You see it spray-painted on car windows during the Christmas season. You see it on cards. It's a very big passage for us as Christians. But it's, it's interesting the setting that it comes to us in. That's not something that's so widely known. You see, Isaiah gives it to us as one of the most influential prophets we have in the Bible, probably the most influential prophet we have in the Bible. But he doesn't just bring it to us. He brings us this great passage in a moment where Judah, the nation, is staring at a bully coming down the hall. Judah is having to face something that is terrorizing them. And that's how he is leading them. God is speaking very kindly to them. God's very own people. 
it's just important to maybe make note that this is a time in Israel's history when they are not one nation, they are two. You have a northern kingdom, Israel, and you have a southern kingdom, Judah. Judah is the nation that Isaiah speaks to. Back then, if you look at your Bible, you have minor and major prophets. They're speaking to different nations. So if you think about Israel, the northern kingdom, that would be Amos, that would be Hosea, and a couple others. But down in Judea, you'd have Micah, you would have um, Isaiah, and you'd have a few others. They would speak to specific nations. And something radical has happened to the northern kingdom. Assyria has blitzed them and carried them off. And Judah finds itself strategically placed in history as they leave an old era and they enter a new era. You see, when Isaiah prophesied this prophecy that we're reading today, this, this passage serves as a midway point between Moses and Jesus, almost perfectly. 700 years earlier, you have Moses leading a people through cleansing water, the Red Sea, and they leave as a brand new nation. 700 years later, Jesus will lead his people through the cleansing regeneration of the Holy Spirit, and they will come out of that as a new people. This fits right in the middle, and they're staring at a bully, a terrorizing force in the Assyrians coming to change their whole way of life. The new world is dawning, the old world is ending, and we're all waiting to see how Judah lands. What's interesting about Isaiah, makes him different from most prophets, is he did not have a lot of authority, but he had a lot of influence. He actually prophesied over the span of four kings. That's rare to find. I mean, if you could imagine someone that did not have an authority in our government, but great, great, great influence, great influence over four or five presidents. That's basically what we're looking at. Very close to kings, very heavy voice. Now, the Assyrians were coming down, and they were basically blitzing and destroying everything in their path. They had already taken the entire northern kingdom of Israel and exiled them away. And now, Judah is next. The bully is coming, and they don't know what to do except be terrified. Now, the northern kingdom, what they did is rather than trust in God, they went with logic, might, and power. They decided that if they could make an alliance with Syria, now Syria is not the same thing as Assyria, okay? If they could make an alliance with Syria, then they might have enough troops, they might have enough horses, they might have enough power to either scare Assyria away or just defeat them. And it didn't work. They are gone. I want you to imagine that. This is an army coming in that does not just defeat a nation, it cleanses it of all of its culture. Gone. No longer does that nation look like that nation, even if all the people come back. It will always look different. So now Judah is in the south, and they're in a place where they have to decide what to do because they're next on the marching list. This is not just a national security decision. This is a theological one. It's a theological one. They have to decide, trust man or trust God. The chips are down. Trust man or trust God. And Judah had very little time to decide. That always makes making decisions a lot harder too, doesn't it? When you're on the clock and the threat is right there in front of you, all the neighbors around you are being defeated, making the wrong decision will end their way of life forever. That's the setting of this passage that we put on Christmas cards. That's what's going on. Now, if we zoom out from the context, the setting of this passage, I think we get this. 
I think we, I do. I think we all understand this. We probably have similar, simu, similar, <laughs> similar situations. I'm going to do this. I'm going to get through it. I think we have all moments like this, and you may have entered with some. I did. I was just praying for one just maybe 10 minutes ago. A bully. Something threatening you. Uh, the fear of something coming to destroy and ruin you right over the hill. Sometimes it's so close, we'd be willing to listen to anyone that says that they have an answer. Anyone that promises that they have a remedy, right? Even if these are people or voices that we wouldn't normally listen to. I think that's easy to do whenever we see the Assyrians just flooding down the plain and there's a cloud of dust because they're moving so quickly towards us and all they've left behind them is a bunch of villages that have been burned down and a bunch of people that have just been pillaged and cultures just been smashed and it's headed straight towards you. And those moments, anyone, and I mean anyone, that promises an answer to get you out of that situation will listen to. These are people, maybe voices, books, our own logic, things that we wouldn't listen to in times of, 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 of peace. We would say that that's dumb. I wouldn't do that. That stands against what God says. But in times of war, and when the heat is on, they become wonderful counselors to us. They become brilliant to us. The logic lines up with ours, and we make the wrong decision. I think God actually warns them of this. If you were still in Isaiah 9, if you were to go backwards a little bit to the 8th chapter, right above it, in verse 19, God warns them that this might happen that the world might speak of advice and give counsel on what to do with the Assyrians. It says this in verse 19, And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, and then it says, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? And then when you go to verse 22, it says this, And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. God is basically saying this to them. Listen, Judah, you can do what you want. You can do what you want. But if you decide to go with what the world says, and the world's spirituality, in, in, in this case it was witchcraft. In our case it could be something very different. If you decide to go with what the world thinks is brilliant, then this is what you have waiting for you. Death thick darkness and gloom. Do you want proof? Look north. Israel, it's not even there anymore. That's proof. It's gone, and it's not coming back. Maybe some of us have an Assyrian army in some form coming at us. Maybe it's on us today. Maybe it's hard to think about anything else, right? And I've been purposely vague on what that could be because it could be anything for anybody. It could be a physical bully the threat of sickness or disease or cancer. Your parents got it. Your grandparents got it. Your great-great-grandparents got it. The doctors say you may get it, so it's a bully. Biff, coming down the aisle, looking at you, right? It might be a financial one for you. Thin times ahead. The stocks have lost all of their value. I'm going to lose my job, whatever it might be, right? It could be a relational bully. You know, we all have those, don't we? A family member that is turned inside out. Uh, maybe a, a relationship that we've always cherished is starting to vaporize. I wouldn't know what that threat that's terrorizing you, I wouldn't know what that looks like. But I think it'd be fair to say that we all have one. I can't even think of a season in my life. I can't even think of one 
where there wasn't at least a distant threat of something that was going to come and hurt me or hurt my family. Always a bully down the hall. Always some Assyrian army coming right at. Always a big bill to be paid. Always a financial thin spot ahead. Always a a family or a friend that's going sideways. Always a body part malfunctioning. Always something. Always something going on. And I think that's just our homestead. That's just our own little circle. But then if you look at the news, then it starts to inflame that fear just even globally. Our president is going to sink us. Russia is going to hurt us. North Korea is going to bomb us. Zika is going to bite us. I mean, you just have to prepare for the worst at all times because there's always bullies coming down the aisle. There's always Assyrian armies. So where you turn when the heat is on is directly influenced by how you see God. Let me say it another way. Your strategy will always reveal your theology. Your strategy will always reveal and be informed by your theology. Because God is either wise, strategic, the holder of answers, a great counselor. He is either that God or he's aloof, stupid, dumb, slow, out of context, and a bad option that's only going to let us down. You will know when your bully gets close. This is why we're tempted to do what Judah is tempted to do. This is why we're tempted to do what Israel did do, and that's build an alliance. Try to pay the bully off. Use our personality. Use our money. Use our strength. Use our wit. Plan our way out of it. Anything we can. Judah just watched another nation trust in their own might, in their own power, in their own wisdom, and they are gone. Now Isaiah tells them the very words of God by saying, hold on, I'm coming. Hold on. You don't have to do what they did. You don't have to rely on your own muscle and your own brilliance. You don't have to. Hold on, because I'm coming and catch this as a child. As a child. And he's going to be called Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful Counselor is just one whose wisdom and strategy and brilliance is unparalleled. And we can trust in ours. We can trust in ours. I love Proverbs 8. It says it this way. God is speaking in first person. He says, I have counsel and sound wisdom. I have insight and I have strength. Let me read it again. I have counsel and sound wisdom. I have insight and I have strength. We can trust this God, even when it looks like God's remedy cannot be trusted. Because it can look like that sometimes. It could look like that oftentimes. God's wisdom to us can look unwise many times. Honestly, I mean, in this passage, nothing seems more out of place to me than a baby. For for to us, a child is born. Well, that's great news. Could use something a little bit more than a baby right now. The Assyrians are getting closer. I was thinking more of a king or a warrior or at minimum, a negotiator that is powerful enough to get us out of this jam. But a child, a child is born to us. Isaiah, a child doesn't seem like it's very wise. doesn't seem very strategic for such a strategic God. But this is how God is always doing things. This is how God is always doing things. When, you, when, when Israel as a young nation had the bully of slavery coming at them, 
And they were begging God for counsel, and they needed God's counsel. You know how it came? You know how that counsel came? God's brilliant strategy? It, it came as Moses with a stick and a fear of public speaking. That just looks dumb. It doesn't look like it's very wise at all. And then when the threat and the bully of death was upon them, and they're sandwiched real tightly between a sea, the Red Sea, and a very angry army that's coming right at them, God's remedy for that, his brilliance, his strategy, was to cross that sea? Doesn't seem very logical. Doesn't line up with my logic. Doesn't line up with what seems very wise. Seems kind of dumb. And then once they got through it, then they have the big bully of hunger. You're going to starve. They need God's counsel. God's answer to their problem ends up being manna from heaven. That seems highly illogical, not very strategic. They, but, but, but then they can, they can actually die of thirst. And they need God to counsel them through that. What do they get? They get a rock that's gushing water. Seems dumb to me. Do you see where this is going? They need guidance. They need to know where to go. And what does God give them? A, a cloud and, and fire? That seems silly. It doesn't seem like what they need at the time. What they need is a map. What they need is a plan. They get that. And all of that was in 40 years. Just in 40 years. God is always speaking to this. Repeatedly, God is bringing his brilliance to bear upon you and me in such a way that our everything inside yells out, this is stupid. This won't work. It's ineffective. There's got to be a better way. This is illogical. And that's our nature. We don't want to trust God's counsel because we think it's stupid or weak or slow, so we like to turn away from it because we think him to be the opposite of what we need. I've been thinking about this for more than a week on different ways that I do this and different ways that we do this as people. And I think one way that we turn away from God's counsel in order to collect our own counsel in a way that Israel did is sometimes God's counsel we feel like is out of date and out of context. It's just out of date. It's just covered in dust. Times are new and advanced and his strategies have cobwebs on them. He's simply out of step. He can't keep up with our news cycle, right? I want you to consider back in the early part of the book of 1 Samuel. You don't have to turn there now, but it's fascinating if you want to go back and read it on your own, right? You see, before that little chunk of scripture, Israel was one nation, and they were led by judges. They were led by judges instead of kings because God was going to be their king. That was going to make them different from all the other nations. God was their king. And the judge would administrate God's kingly leadership but that kind of grew out of fashion because all the other nations had kings that they could go to war with. So what do Israel's leaders do? They step up and they say, appoint for us a king to judge us like all the other nations. Sure, God's wisdom was wise for a time, but we've advanced. We've evolved as a people. <laughs> Judges, I mean, I guess they worked maybe some of the time for a little while, but Let's be honest. Real wisdom, real good counsel is having a king. Now that's what we need. And as we know, that didn't work out really well for them. It did not. We have the same thing happening today right before our eyes. That's what gender fluidity in gay marriage has been. Think about that. Think about it. Many threaten the church. Many hate what the church is doing. Christians, you, me, for not putting love first. 
but for putting God's counsel first. I hear it all the time from people. They say, but listen, things have changed a little bit. We have gender fluidity now. I mean, I I can understand why that was wise for a time, but it's not wise now. We're different people now. We don't even use pronouns like we used to because we are more advanced. Or, Or gay marriage, that would be another one. I mean, come on, Luke, after all, marriage is not a construct that God innovated out of his brilliance. That's something that we come up with. Therefore, we could change it as we evolve and become more advanced as a people. We're doing the same thing today that the people of Israel did back in the day. Where do you feel like God's wisdom is just too old-fashioned? And so you're ready to invoke your own wisdom and your own counsel. Sometimes when I see a bully coming, that's what I want to do. Sometimes I'm tempted to say, "Ah, is that really for today? It'd be helpful right now if it was not for today. Because then I could listen to the world. I could listen to my, my own gut and do what it tells me to do. I could forsake a wonderful counselor and find counsel elsewhere. Another thing we do is God's counsel is not logical. It just doesn't line up with our logic. We have a logic, a gut. We feel like the right thing to do is to go left, and sometimes God tells us in his, in his uh, counsel to go right so it doesn't line up with our logic, and we have that conflict inside. But God is always working in a paradoxical way around us, is he not? I mean, in order to find yourself, you have to lose yourself. If you want to be first, you got to be last. If you want to lead, you got to serve. You see how this works? You can be the poorest person in the room, and you can be one of the most generous people in the room at the same time. This is how God works. But oftentimes, I can look at this paradoxical way of God working and his people and just find it to be very stupid when I line it up with my elite understanding and brilliance and innovation. Because it just doesn't feel right. It doesn't look logical. I think this is what the northern kingdom of Israel probably struggled through. Right when Assyria was coming at them, they probably thought, I would imagine, listen, we know God is strong. We have a long history of God saving our tails out of nowhere, miraculously. We know God is strong. But my gut's telling me that if we build an alliance with Syria, we could just take those clowns out. We could be on top. We don't have to worry about them anymore. I think that's the right card to play. That's logical anyway. That would be the logical thing anyway. And now they're gone. It's gone. But I think the one I struggle with the most, even though I can struggle with both of those, and maybe you're with me in this, is God's counsel is just not quick enough. It's just not quick enough. It is rather slow. And sometimes I don't feel like I'm getting the attention. I need something to happen now. Sometimes we feel like what we love and what we need and what we find valuable is not as valuable to God as it is to us. So then we try to protect it both from our bully and from God. We feel like we're alone. He doesn't value what we value. And when we do listen to God's wonderful counsel, oftentimes we put a very short leash on it, don't we? Hey, I trusted God for like 35 minutes and it didn't work, so I'm going to plan B. Moving to plan B now because that bully's getting close. I mean, consider that a child, the child mentioned in this passage that doesn't even seem helpful to begin with. I mean, I could just imagine just the deflated feeling in the room of he's about to give this beautiful declaration of their, of their uh, freedom, of what's going to free them. And then he comes out with a child is born to us. What would have been even more deflating is if they knew that that child wasn't going to come for 700 more years. <laughs> That's not very fast. That's not very fast at all. 
It's not quick, but it is a great answer to a horrible problem. This child. This is how Ray Ortland says it in his commentary on the book of Isaiah. He says, God's answer to everything that has ever terrorized us is a child. The power of God is so far superior to the Assyrians and all the big shots of this world that he can defeat them by the coming as a mere child. His answer to the bully swaggering through history is not to become an even bigger bully. His answer is Jesus. You see, it seems dumb to me. It may be slow, not logical and unwise and out of touch to make a child the answer to everything that threatens you and me. It just doesn't make sense. But you know what seemingly seems more out of place than that is a cross. That, that's even worse. I think that evokes even more laughter and unbelief from people. Not a child coming, but a cross lifted. I, don't, I think never before has wisdom felt so wrong. I think never before has brilliance seemed so misplaced than on a bloody cross. But the empty grave, it proves that we can trust. The empty grave proves that that wasn't just a misstep, but that was the apex, the very pinnacle of God's pure brilliance for you and me. That nothing works. This doesn't work. This doesn't work. Nothing works without the blood on that cross. As odd and as dumb, as misplaced as that feels, you know how that had to have felt to the people seeing it? This doesn't fit. This doesn't look like wisdom. This doesn't look like God's best answer to us, and yet it is. And how do we know? An empty grave. A gravesite with no body. That's how we know. You have to anchor yourself in that moment. You can't anchor yourself in your current moment. When you're dealing with bullies in Assyrian armies. You have to anchor yourself in that moment. You can't anchor yourself in your current moment. You will always make the wrong decision. You will always grab for the wrong counsel. You will always listen to the wrong voices. You have to trust, and that's what builds our trust, the fact that he has proven himself to be trustworthy. Listen, don't trust God because you've exhausted all of your own strategies. Don't trust God because you've exhausted all of your own strategies. That's not trust. That's just your last resort. Don't trust God because it lines up with your logic. That's not trust. That's trusting yourself. Don't even trust God because it worked for all of your friends. That's not trusting God. That's trusting your friends. Trust God because the tomb was empty. And it shows that his wisdom is supreme. That's why we trust God. We see this in 1 Corinthians. Paul has to speak directly to it. He speaks directly to it. In the 22nd verse of the first chapter in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom or counsel. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. There it is again. It seems dumb. It seems like folly. It seems like a mistake. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom, the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So we see in this passage that the foolishness of God, or the foolishness of the cross, is the greatest counsel to you and me. And if we trust in him, if we see the bully coming, we see the pain, the fear, if we see all of that happening right before our eyes, 
we know that he is a wonderful counselor. He gives good counsel when we are threatened greatly. We know this because we were threatened greatly by death, and that was the best his brilliance ever brought to mankind. His wisdom was Jesus. That's what it says. So if I was to take us back to our original question, what is the biggest bully you have before you as this year turns over? Because Isaiah is telling us to trust in a wonderful counselor, right? And that's certainly going to be difficult for all of us, but that's why it's called trust. Trust is called trust because it's hard. I think one way to apply this, one way I've been fighting to apply this myself, is to see where our fallen instinct tries to carry us. This is what I mean. You see a threat, an army, whether it's physical, financial, relational, you see it coming right at you. It's plowing through everybody around you. You don't have an answer for it. Your gut, the fallen part of you, is going to want to do something. There's an instinctual thing that you're going to want to immediately slip into. What is that for you? It informs you greatly of where you don't trust. It informs you greatly of where your heart is at. And did you know that you can ask the Lord to help you through that? You can ask God to lead you through that. You can ask him for the Holy Spirit to change your heart so you don't have to feel that way. These are big boulders to move. Here's a good example. Some of us, we have some maybe financial bullies coming. Money, right? Maybe your retirement is not stacking up as high as you wanted it to. Maybe your house has lost value, something. Some big threat, some giant pothole that you're headed straight for and you can't swerve around it. You know you're going to hit it. Your instinct, that fallen nature, is going to immediately want to do what? Steal, hoard, and collect. You won't want to be generous. You won't want to be sacrificial. You won't want to manage your finances for God's glory. You will instead manage your finances for your own glory, for your own security, for your own survival. So you take note of that. What does that mean, I believe, about God? The same thing can happen for relational bullies. You have a relationship that's just blowing up in front of you. Uh, Some people will want to cut first instead of be cut, so they'll just cut the relationship off. Just whatever, have a great life, I'm not going to deal with you. Others, they will give in to people-pleasing and fear of man to do anything to please that person so that they don't feel the rejection and they don't have the relationship blow up. These are just instincts. These are fallen instincts that we have. But how does that inform you as to how you see God? And did you know that you can pray accordingly? I did this yesterday, so I wrote it down. This is what it sounded like for me because I felt like he wasn't moving fast enough for me, right? Jesus, you are not slow, but you're very timely. And the delay I feel is good for me, and it is growing me. Of course I trust in you, but I don't really trust in you. (laughs) Yet it was three days until my king left that tomb. There was waiting. And yet it was all according to your clock. You have seen me, but you have not left me. You are interested in my situation. Even my little fires are not little fires to you. You are not panicking. You are not distracted. You are in control. Please lead me to a place by the power of your Holy Spirit, God, where my trust can take a deep breath. Where I could just take a deep breath and enjoy you. You see, you have a wonderful counselor. You have a wonderful counselor who will not be bullied. He will not be threatened. He will not be 
I guess, instigated, insecure. He won't be intimidated. He's not on his heels. His insight and his strategy can be followed. That's true for you and me, for those of us who walk in the midst of being terrorized. That's true for us. You know, there's also a truth for us as we walk around those who are terrorized. So this would be a communal extension of what I just said, right? Because we walk around those who are stressed out because of the bullies in their hallway. It's easy to spot it too, isn't it? Isn't it easy to spot whenever someone is terrorized? One way that we know is because they won't talk about anything else. It's all they can talk about. And they want to know what you think. Even though you've told them a hundred times, they keep asking you what you would do. What would you do if you were in my shoes? They want you to tell them an easy answer to get rid of this bully. Another way that we know that people around us are struggling with the bullies in their hallway and the, the armies that are threatening to invade is that they won't invest or nurture you. They won't invest in the relationship. It starts to feel one-sided. And that's because all they can think about is the bully. Because no one takes their eye off a bully. Not for one minute. Right? So they're not investing in the relationship. You are, but they're not. Right? Another one is very general. It's just that they have an anxiety problem. They just struggle with anxiety. Bullies everywhere. Everything can go wrong at any time. You know, there's a great little booklet it's more booklet than it is book that Robert Kellerman wrote on anxiety. And I think the title of it is anxiety, but he says this. I just took a couple little chunks out of it. He says, anxiety is vigilance that is out of control. You continually scan your environment worried about the what ifs of life. Anxiety is actually toxic scanning. It is trying to maintain control in a self-protective and self-sufficient way. Anxiety is vigilance minus faith in God. And you can see it on your friends, can't you? Anxious, one-sided, always talking about what's, what's, what's right on top of them. So what do you do? You gently lead them. You gently lead them. You lead them to see that all of what God has done in the face of danger so that they don't have to protect themselves. And listen, this requires a billion applications too. Just a billion and then when you're done, you have a billion more. But we do it, and we're patient. We give them grace because we have our thing too. We have our, we have our little thing too that requires a lot of grace and patience. And God was gracious and patient with us. If I was to take that communal application and extend it even further to the city, we don't just walk with people that are being terrorized. We don't walk um, just as people who are being terrorized, but we also walk around and among people that are being terrorized. The city is being terrorized. Many, 84% of your city that's sleeping right now, 84%, they are buying a line. Some counsel has been given to them, and they've bought it. They've made alliances. They've done whatever they can with their power and their might to get rid of all the threats and the forces around them, and they are being failed. They are being failed, over-promised and under-delivered. That you can bank on without even asking any questions. You walk into a broken marriage, you don't even have to ask any questions before you know that they have tried applying wisdom from the world and their own logic, which got them where they're at, by the way, and none of it's working. You know that before they even open their mouth. You, as a missionary, may be leading the city to bigger decisions in order to make sense of their smaller ones. 
when I say smaller ones, I mean these bullies. God is actually after something a little bit bigger than that crisis that's sitting in their lap. You see, when these marauders would come in and out of Israel all the time, whether it was one nation or two, these foreign powers would come in and be a big threat. Oftentimes, when you read in the Old Testament, what God is doing is he's saying, I see them, I see them. Yeah, they got a lot of horses. I'm sure that's impressive. They're there. They're angry. That's a real threat. But I'm wanting you to put down the idols. I'm wanting you to return to me. He's after something bigger. He's after their purity. He's after their devotion. Not nearly as fascinated with all the other threats and fires and bullies and armies as he is their hearts. I find this is helpful as a missionary when I'm talking to those who are far from Jesus about the crises and the fires in their life. You know, I think when I think about my dad, what got my family is, because I didn't grow up going to church really, but my daddy had a, a broken family and it was breaking, it was pulling further and further apart. So what he'd do is he would do what the world would say, would fix your family, move this to the suburbs. Got a second job so he could make more money. A better environment, more money, should work. But it didn't, it got worse. So his fires and his bullies got closer and closer and the threat got heavier and heavier. So he did all he knew how to do, which is, I guess we go to church. Believe it or not, back then, that's kind of still where people started to go whenever they wanted truth, whether they grew up in church or not. It's not like that anymore, though. No longer is the church the bastion of all truth, but back then it kind of still was. So we went from church to church to church until my parents got saved. And you know, what my dad and my mom realized is, man, these fires that were around us, they were a pretty big deal, but not as big as the big decision that God was leading us to. The big bully we had was death. The big bully we had was destruction and separation from God. God, in his brilliance in bringing these other fires and marauders and bullies, was to draw us to this. It was fun to watch that happen. It's fun to watch my parents grow over that. Because the suburbs, they're not going to do it. Second job, friends, it's not going to do it. It's not going to take care of that bully. So what we do as missionaries is we, we lead people to see the failure in what the world holds up as brilliant and strategic and wise. And you know what? It's going to resonate because they've been feeling it fail. But they have to see that failure before anything else even makes sense. So you have to lead them to see that their false saviors are failing them. Their false alliances aren't working. Then you have to lead them to see that even death itself is no longer a bully for those who are in Jesus. Death doesn't even bully us. Death isn't even a threat to those who are hidden in Christ. I'll tell you what, go ahead and stand up with me. We'll keep it short today. I do want to go back to Proverbs 8. This is going to need to be something that you say over your own heart as we have worship and the team's going to come out, and they're going to have songs, and there's going to be intimacy here, driven by you, where you can go back to the elements, you can take your family, you can worship together. I want you to consider what your bully is, what that Assyrian art, and you might have many. I have many, and listen, it took me a while. I prayed, and I prayed, and I prayed, and, and then God, at the last minute, brought up another one. I thought, how did I not see that? That thing has been freaking me out forever. And I've been asking people what they would be doing. I've been worrying about it, trying to get a game plan together. 
Not once have I considered that God is the best counselor in this. Not once. That's your pastor talking. It takes some thinking. It takes some consideration. Asking God by the Spirit to show you where it is that you have bullies that you won't even admit to. And then as you find them, Proverbs 8, God saying to you, fill in a blank with your name, I have counsel and sound wisdom. God says to you individually that he has insight. He has strength. God has counsel, wisdom, insight, and strength. He has proven it. The proof is, for unto us a child was born. And that child would be our hero. And that child would find a cross. All of it seeming very unwise. All of it looking very dumb and illogical. And all of it totally brilliant. Beautifully brilliant. He is wonderful. He is a wonderful counselor. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you that as we go into Advent that you are good counsel to us.